Jesus sees every bit as clearly today as he did in the first century. He saw through all of the facade, all of the things that would have frankly impressed us if we had seen the Pharisees, and he knew their hearts. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Do you wear a spiritual mask? Put another way, do you behave differently around friends and co-workers than you do in church or other spiritual settings? Or do you perhaps serve God with your lips and not your heart? Hello again, I'm Bill Wright. And today, Tom continues in his current series with part four of Tradition. We're continuing to look at some practical implications for believers found in Mark chapter 7. Today, Tom will look at three ways believers are to follow Jesus and his commands without falling into the trap of legalism. You'll be challenged to deal with your own heart as to whether or not you have an accurate assessment of your heart in service to God. So let's join our teacher to find out more on The Word Unleashed. Notice here, it's not the person who declared his belongings, Corbin, who is circumventing his responsibility necessarily. Jesus specifically says the religious leaders are not permitting him to honor his parents. Now, this could happen in one of two ways. One of them could be that you had this really good-hearted Jewish person who, who loved his God, he wanted to honor God, and he wanted to devote something from his household to God. And so he does. He declares, by this whole system the Pharisees, the rabbis had created, he declares maybe a piece of property, Corban. When I die, I want the temple treasure to get it. I want God to have it. I want to honor God with, with my property. But then time goes on, and his parents' circumstances change. Maybe they were in a bad investment and they've lost all of their resources and now he needs to support them. And that piece of property is really the only way he has to do that. And the leadership won't let him have control of those resources again so that he can provide help to his parents. They held a tight rein on whatever they had been told belonged to God, had been devoted to God through this system of Corban. According to Josephus, the Jewish historian writing for the Romans, he said that the priest demanded 50 shekels from a man and 30 shekels from a woman in order to cancel Corban. That's almost a year's pay. If you want to get out of this deal, okay, but you owe us a year's worth of pay. It was a racket. That was one way that they could work this where they... They wouldn't allow a man to help his mother and father. He may want to, but be constrained because he had devoted this property to the Lord under different circumstances, and he couldn't get it back. He couldn't get control of it again to be able to help his parents. The other way this could happen is a hateful child who was greedy and selfish could find shelter under these laws of Corban to protect all of his estate from having to support his parents. He could simply find out that his parents need his help, and he could declare everything he owned Corban. Guess what? He gets to use it the rest of his life. He retains sole possession of it. He gets the interest off of it. It's all his, 
And when he dies, the temple gets it, but he doesn't lose any of it during his lifetime. He could retain that possession, any interest it earned. He could follow his greediness, supposedly, in devoting it to the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but the first question that comes to my mind when I study this passage is why? Why would the Pharisees do this? What possible reason could they have for keeping a son who desired to help his parents from doing so? Or in helping a worthless son avoid his obligation to his parents? Well, as they say, follow the money. In either case, guess where the portion of the estate that had been identified as Corbin went after the person died? To the temple treasury out of which all of these people received their life support and income. In fact, Matthew uses the Greek word, you've heard me use the word korban, he uses the Greek word korbanos to describe the temple treasury where these offerings were stored in many cases. Here's the bottom line. Judaism had become a false religious system. And like all false religious systems, its leaders were greedy and hungry for money. They had a love for money. Listen to Jesus on several occasions. Matthew 23, 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside, watch this, you are full of robbery. You're stealing from people and then you're turning around and using what you steal from people for your own self-indulgence. Listen, they were just like every other false teacher. They're just like every faith healer you see on television. Like every word of faith guy, it's about the money. Follow the money. It was the same with them. Listen to what Jesus said in Mark 12, verse 40. You devour widows' houses. You take advantage of the most vulnerable. You get them to commit their money. You basically are robbing them. You're taking advantage of them in, in their time of desperation, in their time of trouble, and you're taking advantage of their trust of you as a religious leader. In Luke 16, verse 14, now the Pharisees, Jesus says, were lovers of money. They were lovers of money. So, in some cases, they wouldn't permit sons to help their parents. In other cases, they helped greedy sons jilt their parents. And then they, along with others who were greedy, undoubtedly took advantage of this little loophole to protect their own resources. It was all about the money. And they took advantage of the people. The Mishnah describes a discussion among the rabbis of whether a vow could be annulled in order to, to help your parents. This whole issue came up in, in the Jewish writing, the Mishnah. All but one rabbi said it could not be set aside. The vow could not be set aside even to help your parents. Ironically, in later writings, the rabbis modified their stand on this very issue, possibly in response to this very conversation Jesus had with the Pharisees. Notice the end result. Look at the end of Jesus' personal diagnosis of legalism in verse 13. When you do that, 
with this system you've created, when you don't permit someone to honor his father or mother financially, you invalidate the word of God by your tradition which you have handed down, and you do many things such as that. I want you to notice the progression here. In verse 8, he says they neglected the commandment. In verse 9, they rejected the commandment. In verse 13, they invalidated the commandment. The, The Greek word invalidate there is a formal legal term. It means to annul or repeal a law. It's absolutely shocking. The religious leaders of Israel actually dared to repeal the Word of God, to declare the Word of God unlawful. How? By their tradition, which they had handed down. Now, folks, what I want you to see here is this is more than a simple chastisement. This is a verdict rendered about what first century Judaism had become. You've got to get out of your mind that first century Judaism was some wonderful faith that just had a few problems. There were a few people that were involved in the problem. Judaism, as it had become in the first century, was aberrant. It was a false religion. And I want to develop this just a little bit, the true nature of first century Judaism, pulling away from what Jesus said directly. But I want to look at this in two different ways. Jesus said first century Judaism has become completely worthless and corrupt. Even worse, it had ceased to be the true faith of the true God at all. It had become a false religion. Why? Two reasons. And Jesus identifies both of them in this text. One, its source of authority. And two, its way of salvation. Ironically, sola scriptura and sola gratia. They had removed both of those realities and replaced them with their own inventions. Now, what I want to do in in just the brief time we have left is I want to briefly show you how this worked with the source of authority. And then, Lord willing, two weeks from tonight, we'll look at the way of salvation. I think it's very important that you understand this because it's under attack today in our community in Christian schools, in our community, in churches, in our community. And it undermines the faith. So I want to develop this more two weeks from tonight. But let's look tonight just briefly at the source of authority of first century Judaism. By the time of the first century, the Jews had been passing down orally the teaching and interpretation of the rabbis for at least a couple hundred years. And the Pharisees believed that that oral tradition that had been passed down was every bit as important as the Torah. Torah is simply a word for the first five books of Moses, the law of God, the Torah. They believed the oral tradition was equal weight, maybe even more important. The oral tradition explained how the Torah was to be lived out in real life. Jesus would have none of it. For him, the commands of God that were contained in the Scripture and the Scripture alone, those were what were really important. None of the rituals mentioned here in Mark 7 are in the Old Testament law. They're not commanded by the Old Testament law. Instead, they were all drawn from that growing body of oral interpretation of the law. In Jesus' time, it was still strictly oral tradition. 
200 years after Christ, this oral tradition, this oral interpretation would be gathered and written down in a document. That document is called the Jewish Talmud. Now, the Talmud, I just want to briefly explain this to you. The Jewish Talmud is not one book, but two books. One book in the Jewish Talmud is the Mishnah. The Mishnah simply means the review. It's the legal decision or the interpretation of the Torah by a long line of rabbis called teachers over a period of about 400 years. It was passed down by oral tradition, some written documents, eventually compiled into a written document about 200 A.D., compiled by a wealthy sage of Palestine named Rabbi Judah the Prince. That's one book of the Jewish Talmud. The other book of the Jewish Talmud is the Gemara. It's the interpretation of the Mishnah. About 300 years after the Mishnah was compiled, a second group of sages called the commentators debated and interpreted the Mishnah. Now, if that's all confusing, let me give it to you in simple math terms. The Torah is the first five books of Moses. The Mishnah is the interpretation of the Torah. The Gemara is the interpretation of the Mishnah. And the Mishnah plus the Gemara equals the Talmud. Is that clear? All right? Now, why do I bother to tell you that? It started before Christ, folks. The oral tradition started before the time of Christ. That's what he was dealing with in his lifetime. Guess what? It hasn't changed. What role does the Talmud continue to have in Judaism today? Let me recommend a book to you that I think you'll find very informative if you want to learn how modern Jewish people think. Herman Woke wrote, This is My God. He's a practicing Jew, and he wrote this book to explain to his non-Jewish friends what Judaism is all about. You'll get a good glimpse of how the Jewish person thinks. It's an excellent resource to understand Judaism. Listen to what Woke says in this book, explaining Judaism. At this point, he's talking now the late last century, in the very long history of Judaism's legal literature, it seems clear that the center of gravity of authority. Now, stop. What do you expect to hear next? Is the Scripture. But notice what he says. The center of gravity of authority is fixed in the Mishnah and the Gemara, just as the final faith of the Jews is fixed in the Torah. He goes on to say, the Talmud is to this day the circulating heart's blood of the Jewish religion. Whatever laws, customs, or ceremonies we observe, whether they are orthodox, conservative, reformed, or merely spasmodic, sentimentalist, we follow the Talmud. It is our common law. What I want you to see is that nothing has changed. From 200 years before Christ, this was adopted. It's what Jesus was dealing with in the first century. It was written down 200 years after Christ, all of that oral tradition collected from the rabbis, the ancient rabbis, and it is today the heart and center, the authority of Judaism. Tragically, all of that interpretation ends up undermining the law of God, the Torah. Wook himself gives an example. And I want to read this to you because I want you to see this. This is his own description. He's writing in favor of Judaism, but listen to what he says. The Torah abounds in death penalties. Okay, stop there. You look at the Old Testament law, 
it was clear there was a death penalty in Israel for a number of infractions. But, he goes on to say, then we come to the common law. That's that oral tradition now codified in the Talmud. And we find capital punishment, in effect, abolished by the obstacles to the death verdict. A Sanhedrin that condemned one man to death in 70 years was called a bloody Sanhedrin, the Talmud says. The chains of witnesses required in a capital case, the rigid rules for proving knowledge of the law and premeditation, the restricted admissible evidence, the special voting procedures of the court, all combined to make death a theoretical punishment almost never reached. Now, I'm all for protections so that innocent people don't die. But it's hard for me to believe that there was only one murderer in 70 years. These hedges, again, were common law handed down from remote antiquity. What I want you to see, folks, is that it's exactly the same. That is exactly the same reason Jesus and the religious leaders clashed in the first century. It had to do with the source of authority. Even by then, Judaism had already substituted human tradition for divine revelation. What was the crux of what divided Jesus and the religious leaders of Judaism? Look at the passage again, verse 3, the tradition of the elders. You've received things in order to keep them. Verse 5, the tradition of the elders. Precepts of men. Tradition of men, verse 8. Verse 9, you want to keep your tradition. Verse 13, your tradition which has been handed down. Notice the contrasts in that section. The Pharisees are into tradition, things received, precepts of men, the tradition of men, your tradition which you have handed down. Jesus is into the commandment of God and the Word of God. What I want you to see, folks, is the primary message of this record is the spiritual bankruptcy of substituting human tradition for divine revelation. And by doing so, first century Judaism had become a false religion, especially when you add the fact that they changed the whole way a man could be right with God, as we'll look at our next time. No wonder Jesus said, you have annulled the Word of God by your tradition. Now, what about us? What are the implications for us from this passage, from the point Jesus is making? First of all, for us who are in Christ, this is a call to adopt the commitment of the early church. Those men and women who came out of such a system of control, either Jewish, brought up in the Jewish homes, or who were proselytes in many cases, Gentiles, who embraced the Jewish system, lived under all of this. How did they change? Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4. I love this. This is one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, as Paul discusses what's going on there in Corinth, he says this. Verse 6, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. Now, you can't see it as well in our New American text. I think in this case, it's one of the rare times where the NIV is is more accurate. But in verse 6, there is a famous saying from the early church. In fact, it's introduced by an article in the Greek text. He says this, so that you might learn in us 
the meaning of this saying. It was a saying very popular and common in the early church. What was it? Me huper hagagraftai, not beyond what has been written. That was the saying they embraced. What has been written? What does the Word of God say? We're not going to go beyond that. Can I admonish you? Let's live like that. You don't need man-made rules. What does the Word say? Not beyond what has been written. It's not clear chapter and verse. Then don't let it bind your conscience and don't use it to bind the consciences of others. Number two, this passage is a call to each of us to examine how our personal fences, those rules we do set up, might in fact be undermining God's own commands. You know, one of the most shivering verses in all the Scripture to me comes at the end of verse 13. Do you see what Jesus says? And you do many things such as that. Many times I have found myself praying to the Lord, Lord, reveal to me if I'm doing things in my own heart and life that are undermining your divine intention, your divine will. We need to examine, are any of our personal fences, our rules, our little decisions we've made about what we're going to do and not do, are any of those, in fact, undermining God's law? Whenever we add our own rules to the bare word of God, as Luther called it, we risk undermining the original intention of God himself, just as it was with the Pharisees. Number three, this is a call to self-examination. Are we wearing a mask? Are we wearing a mask? Are we serving God with our lips, but not with our hearts? We need to remind ourselves that Jesus sees every bit as clearly today as he did in the first century. He saw through all of the facade, all of the things that would have frankly impressed us if we had seen the Pharisees. And he knew their hearts. We need to examine our own hearts and ask God to examine them. I love that expression from the psalm. Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there be any way in me that causes you pain. May God help us to pray that. Are we the real thing? Number four, it's a reminder to be grateful that God has revealed himself in a book. And that book is complete. It has everything we need. It has every expectation from God. That book is is enough and we don't need to add anything to it and when we do like the pharisees we may very well end up creating a system that runs contrary to the very will and purpose of god all man-made false religion substitutes their own ideas for divine revelation may god help us to see the faults and to stay committed to the true, to the bare Word of God. Let's pray together. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part four of his current series titled Tradition. Join us next time for part five as Tom once again takes us to God's Word. 
Well, Tom, what are some practical ways that we can examine our intentions in the sense of serving and loving God? You know, I think it starts by acknowledging that often, like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4, we don't even understand our own hearts at times. And so it's important, therefore, for us to come to that self-examination in two ways. Number one, through the Scripture itself. As we are in the Scripture, as our hearts are exposed to the truth, the Holy Spirit convicts us of those wrong motives, and we see them for what they are. Secondly, I think we need to do like the psalmist in Psalm 139, and that is pray and say, Lord, search my heart and see if there's any way in me that causes you pain. So that's the way of self-examination. It's really allowing the Spirit, through His Word, to expose our hearts to us so that we can deal with that and confess it and make sure that we're pursuing the Lord with the right intentions. Thanks, Tom. And friend, in a world filled with great uncertainty, God's Word and the promises it contains offer wonderful encouragement to believers in Jesus Christ. We pray that the ministry of the Word Unleashed is playing a prominent role to that effect. And we'd love to hear how that works in your life and personal walk with the Lord. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. We also invite you to visit thewordunleashed.org, where you'll find other resources, including additional radio series from The Word Unleashed. That's all at thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.